As Jesus went on from up there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call righteousness, but sinners. Jesus' questions about fasting. When John's disciples came and asked about him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. They will not fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garnet, for the patch will put away from the garnet, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wineskins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Amen. Thank you so much for that reading. Well, let me say again, good evening. It is so good to be here. And uh, as I said previously, I'm very excited to bring the word to you tonight. Um, I've possibly got way too much to say and I've tried to cut it down. Um, so we'll try and uh, see how we go. But it's very, very exciting to stand in front of a congregation. Um, Pastor Daryl is possibly watching online and I just want to say... <laughs> I got them, you didn't, because I know how tough it is to sit in front of those cameras, and that's what Pastor Darrell had to do this week, and uh, I'm just so excited to be here. And I want to thank Tim again and his team and all they did to make tonight happen. That is absolutely brilliant, and uh, it's good to be back here. And we're looking at a very exciting passage tonight, and, and I hope that there's something here that will prick your conscience, that will draw you closer to God, that will challenge you, make you want to take steps so that you are drawing closer to God, and that this... This is going to change your life. Uh, I, I pray and hope that as, as you hear my voice, as you've heard the Bible reading, that it'll drive you to go home and read it again. It'll drive you to want to understand this passage of Scripture tonight. And uh, what we read tonight is the account of Matthew being called by Jesus. And then there's a few other things related to uh, Jesus' disciples in here as well. But I think there's a little bit of background that is relevant to what we're looking at tonight. And I think we need to understand it a little so we can take this in context and so as we read this passage um, at this stage Jesus has already called a number of disciples there's actually been six dis disciples called at this stage in Matthew 4 18 to 22 uh, we are given um, the account of Jesus calling Peter Andrew James and John 
Peter, Andrew, James and John, as you're possibly aware, were all fishermen. And uh, in John 1, 35, 51, we read the account of Philip and Nathaniel being called. So Matthew is the seventh disciple who is called by Jesus at this time. Now, just before the calling of um, Matthew, it's been a couple of weeks since we've met. So just before the calling of Matthew, Jesus has performed an incredible miracle. Um, you know, you would have remembered that we spoke about this, and this was the, the paralyzed man that his friends brought to him. And it was blatantly obvious what this man's need was when he was put before Jesus. It's obvious he needed to walk. And if you remember, Jesus saw the faith of his friends, and he looked at the guy and he said, Mate, your sins are forgiven. Hello, what's going on here? And then Jesus, realizing that there was people there who didn't believe he had the power to forgive sins, wanted to give a demonstration physically of the authority that he had. So he turned to the guy and said, mate, just pick up your mat and go home. And so this man who hadn't been able to walk for such a prolonged period of time picks up his mat and walks out. They've never seen anything like that before. And the fact that he was able to do that says that Jesus had the authority not only to raise him as he did, but also to forgive the sins that he declared to be forgiven. This is an incredible thing. Jesus saw the man's greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. And that's what this is about tonight. Jesus came for sinners. He declared... This man's sins forgiven. And because of us as humans and our incredible lack of belief, he also healed him physically so that there was this demonstration that we could see of his power. And the man got up and walked away. And it was a miracle that's never been seen before. It's something that had never happened. And they'd never heard a man so boldly proclaim someone's sins forgiven and this is what we need to keep in mind as we move through this passage tonight that jesus came for sinners and i'm going to pause and pray right now father god my my prayer at this time is always simple lord and that's for an opening of hearts and opening of minds a willingness to hear your voice not my voice and a willingness to engage with the passage of scripture lord Father, do your work as only you and Holy Spirit can, I pray. Move amongst us, Father, touching lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Up to this chapter in Matthew, we've seen so many accounts of Jesus and his power. And so we saw him with his power over nature in calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. We saw his power over the forces of evil in casting out demons and those same demons fearing him greatly. He demonstrated his authority to heal all types of people, every sort of disease and ailment. And as mentioned just before, he has the power and authority to forgive sins. And now we'll see how he, in his wisdom and in his power, transforms lives. And it starts with a call. And in this reading tonight, we heard Jesus say, come, follow me. And I believe this is God's call for each and every human being. I believe God has this general call to everyone where he says, come and follow me. And those who respond to that call end up having a specific call as well. This specific call is a purpose that they need to fulfill in order to follow Christ as they should. 
And I believe we see this worked out in Matthew as well. And we heard it read, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Jesus passes on from where he had forgiven the paralytic sins, the greatest miracle. And after that encounter, he walks by Matthew. And I don't believe this is a coincidence. I believe that he purposefully went to where Matthew was. I believe he sought him out. He wanted to encounter Matthew. Now, Matthew is a tax collector or a publican. And he made his living by collecting taxes and customs and duties for the Roman government. Remember, they're by the sea. And these tax collectors were hated by the Jews. They were seen as traitors to their people. And they were also despised by the Romans. They were tolerated as a necessary evil by them. But realistically, the only friends that tax collectors had were other tax collectors. They were known as being dishonest and greedy because they collected the Roman taxes and duties which were passed on to the Romans. But they were permitted to add whatever percentage they wanted on top of that. They were permitted to ask whatever they required. And that extra percentage was for themselves. And so they were considered to be very dishonest. And many added a substantial amount. And I want you to think about the account of Zacchaeus when he comes to faith and he stands with Jesus in his presence and says, Behold, Lord, half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I restore it to them fourfold. And I believe this is a confession. I believe he's saying, I did it. And I'm willing to pay restitution now because in your presence, Jesus, I see the mistake I have made. And as a follower of yours, I'm going to to right those wrongs. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He would have collected huge amounts of funds. But back to Matthew and our account. Jesus calls him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. He left everything behind. Now, I want you to think about what is going on here. Matthew is despised by the Jews, and Jesus has already called some disciples. Amongst them is Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Matthew would have collected taxes and duty on many fishing catches. Do you think there would be much tension in that camp? Here's Peter, James, John, and Andrew already following Jesus, and Jesus decides to add Matthew. I don't know what that first conversation would have been like. And when we think of disciples, I'm not sure if we get the picture of what really happens. It's like being indentured to someone. So wherever Jesus went, they went. Wherever Jesus slept, they slept. They were actually with Jesus constantly. So this small band of men who were enemies are suddenly thrown together. Do you think that's a coincidence that Jesus did that? I I don't. I think that sometimes we have people come into our church environment who we don't particularly like and I believe Jesus brings them for a reason and that's for our growth. And I think this is written here so we can understand Jesus expects us to get on even with those we despise, even with those we hate, even with those who are outcasts and not considered even to uh, to be acceptable to us. Jesus doesn't make mistakes. I think Matthew's put in their presence for them to overcome their differences, to learn forgiveness, to learn to love those who are pretty hard to love. And I think it serves as an example to all of us who are reading this account. And to Matthew's credit, he's a humble man, and you don't get that as your first 
read through this. But I believe he's an incredible humble man. This is the first time in chapter 9 that Matthew mentions his own name. He's the writer of this gospel and at no time has he mentioned his own name. In the next section that we'll look at uh, tonight, uh, he throws this big party, doesn't he? Matthew doesn't say that the party's in his house. Some of you will have an NIV which actually says it is Matthew. Uh, It wasn't in the original text. So we actually learn that um, from Luke and Mark. They actually say that it was Matthew. And so they've poured it across in the NIV so that just to even the playing field, I suppose. But... The other thing is, Matthew is never quoted as saying anything in any of the Gospels. The other disciples are. Matthew's not. And he seems content to not draw attention to himself. He seems to not speak out, and he's just content with faithfully serving Jesus. And I think we can trust his account as it happened, as it's recorded. I think we can just believe it, because as a tax collector... He had to keep very good, accurate records. And I believe this overflowed into his record of Jesus' life. I believe that that would have been a very good, accurate record of his encounter with Christ during his life. And Matthew was a sinner, despised by the Jews, considered unclean by them and the religious leaders. He was immoral and he was beyond help, hated by the Romans. And the only friends he had would have been fellow tax collectors. But in the midst of this chapter, we learn that this was Jesus' mission. There are many things we overlook when it comes to faith. And I want you to think about Matthew, who he was. And as I said, he's a terrible sinner. And have you ever found yourself classifying someone like that? A terrible sinner. Someone you steer clear of. Someone you wouldn't even consider approaching. Jesus came for sinners. And Matthew was one of those. And while the world saw Matthew as a vile traitor, an unclean and notorious sinner, Jesus saw all of that. And he saw Matthew's heart. And Jesus called him. Because that's why Jesus came. He came to call sinners. And Matthew experiences this immediate change. It's not so obvious when we read this Gospel of Matthew. But so much so that he throws this party and he invites all his friends. And Jesus comes and he reclines at this table in this house and there's tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And Matthew, again, doesn't draw attention to himself. His focus is on Jesus and what Jesus is doing at this time. Jesus is reclining at the table and who is eating with him? Those despised tax collectors, the sinners of the world, the dregs, if you like. But he also had his disciples there. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel and Matthew. Jesus calls Matthew. Matthew responds. And he responds because there's something about Jesus. And I don't know if he believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah at that stage, but he was just drawn to Jesus. And, And there was something that said, 
This is my Lord. He, he engaged with that. And so his first response is to invite his friends to meet his new master. He, he has just made himself unemployed. And not only is he unemployed, he's unemployable. The Romans won't take him back once he's stepped out on them. And there's no way the Jews are going to employ an ex-tax collector. It's just not going to happen. And so when you think about it, he's got a reserve of funds, a reserve of money, which perhaps he should be a little bit careful with, considering he's got no future employment and no future prospects on the table. But instead, he throws a party. Because he found Jesus. Because he was committed to him. Because he sees himself as being saved. And for Matthew, the most important thing is that his friends find Christ just as he found Christ. That his friends believe in Jesus just as he believes in Jesus. And that he commits, he gets them to commit to him as well. And can you imagine that setting? Obviously the focal point is Jesus. But the other disciples are there. What would they be doing? What would they be saying? Would they be reflecting on how Jesus called them as well? Would they be talking about how Jesus had changed their life? Would they talk about the miracles that they had seen, the incredible things that Jesus had done? I think they would. Because these guys are here with Jesus, who is highly acknowledged in their communities at the time. And I think they'd want to know more about him. And I think that opens the door for these young disciples to speak about what they have seen. They don't know theology, but they can talk about what Jesus has done in their life and what they've seen him do in other people's lives. Who knows what happened to those gathered around the table? They may have accepted Jesus as Messiah at that time, or they may have come to that point later on. Either way, they saw that Jesus accepts sinners and spends time with them. And for this young group of disciples, wherever Jesus went, they went. And they saw how Jesus loved sinners. They saw how Jesus valued sinners. They saw how Jesus spent time with sinners. And they learned this is why he came. This was his purpose. And he was teaching them to do the same when he leaves because they had to continue his work in spending time with sinners and drawing them into the kingdom. And it was unthinkable, unthinkable at that time that a tax collector would be accepted. It's a radical thing for them, so hard for them to comprehend. But this was God's new way. As we move into this next section of this passage, think about what's going on. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are responsible for drawing people to God. And yet they were shocked and horrified that Jesus would spend time with sinners. The Pharisees come and they speak to the disciples and they say, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice that differentiation there. Tax collectors were particularly heinous. So it was bad enough he was with them, but he was also with sinners. The sinners aren't so bad. But I want you to remind you again that it was the Pharisees who started out with good intentions. It was the Pharisees who brought Israel back to God, but somewhere along the way, they lost their way. 
And they ended up being proud, arrogant, hungry for status, hungry for recognition, corrupted for what was good. And we see the outworking all through Scripture. The Pharisees see, see themselves as having this high view of sin and holiness. For them, there is no way that their religious leaders should associate with sinners. And if they were to associate with tax collectors, they would be unclean, unable to fulfill their duties. And I think it's interesting to note, they don't go to Jesus. They go to the disciples. And they go to them because they can put seeds of doubt in the disciples' minds. They can say things that sound true and holy and righteous and hopefully to turn the disciples away from this man, Jesus. And it happens today. There are people who sound righteous, who sound holy, who are going to say things in order to draw you away from the truth. And we have to be on our guard against that. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They want to seed that doubt. And perhaps they even quoted from Scripture. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed is this man who doesn't sit or stand with sinners, and yet here is your leader reclining at a table? Seriously? How does he justify that when the scriptures say this? What kind of man is he? What kind of leader is he? They question Jesus' judgment and the righteousness of his actions. And they hoped that they would cause his disciples to doubt him and ultimately fall away from him. But Jesus overhears them and he responds. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a huge rebuke to the Pharisees. When Jesus speaks of the righteous here, he's referring to the Pharisees. And while researching this, I found a paraphrase that I think sums this up really well. I don't know whose it is, but... It's pretty cool. I like it. It's not those who think they are... Oh, sorry. Yeah. For some reason, I've put the wrong thing down here, so I'm going to have to read it here. It's not those who think they are healthy who call the doctor, but those who know they are sick. My invitation is not for the self-righteous, but for those who admit they are lost sinners. The Pharisees neither understood sin and they didn't understand what sin does to people. If they understood sin and the internal consequences of it, then they would have made sure as few as people as possible end up experiencing God's wrath. They would desire that all sinners be brought into a saving relationship with God. They would interpret what Jesus is saying as a rebuke that they don't understand the letter of the law either. This is being clearly indicated back in Matthew 5 in the series where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say, he had those statements back there in Matthew 5. And Jesus is saying that here to the Pharisees, you don't understand the law. Jesus calls them to learn what it means to 
when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he's quoting Hosea, a passage that they would know. And Jesus is indicating that the Old Testament was pointing out that mercy and compassion were of greater value than all sacrifices. It's a theme throughout Scripture. And these guys simply did not get it. They've got everything back to front. They believe the law comes first and is rigid, unmovable, unbendable, if that's a word. It's without compromise. And Jesus says, you've got it wrong. If upholding the law conflicts with bringing mercy and compassion, then it's the law that must suffer. Mercy and compassion reflect the very heart of God. And all of his followers are called to show compassion. And then Jesus says, they don't understand the prophets. Why or how? Well, you see, the prophets foretold that Messiah would come and he would bind up the brokenhearted. That he would come to call the lost sheep of Israel who had strayed. The Messiah would come to pay for the sins of the people. He came not to call the righteous, but he came to call the sinners. If he is to call sinners, then who would he associate with? And all the scripture points to the fact that we are to be compassionate towards the wicked, towards the lost, towards sinners. The Pharisees don't understand any of this. So Jesus rebukes them for their question. And he states clearly why he has come. He came for sinners. Then John's disciples, they come as well. And to their credit, they go straight to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't? And they come and they're questioning why the disciples of Jesus don't fast. John himself had some very serious Nazarite vows that he took. He had very high standards for his disciples. And one of those standards was that they fast twice a week. And he had them fasting in repentance of their sin. He wanted them to understand what sin does to humanity. And so they, they fasted twice a week and prayed for their forgiveness of sins and for the sin that was consuming them and the people around them. But none of this is commanded. None of this is of God. It's a good practice, but doesn't say in Scripture anywhere that you should fast twice a week and so Jesus doesn't tell them that their practices are bad because it is good to fast but he gives them a bit of an analogy and I want you to think about this because we, we so often make scripture something that it's not just take this at va face value can the wedding guest mourn while the bridegroom's still with them? Could you imagine what that was like if we were wailing and crying as a couple got married? Wailing as if they were dead? You just don't do it, do you? We celebrate, we're excited, unless we think we should have been with a girl or something, I don't know. But, you know, you come to these weddings and it's such an incredible thing, it's such an honour and a privilege to be part of it, and you celebrate, you know, people get up and dance who haven't danced before and things like that. There's this joy, there's this hope, there's this blessing, there's this wanting the best for the couple getting married, you pray for them, you join all the amens during that service, it's an incredible time. 
And you are not going to fast. You are not going to grieve. You are not going to mourn during that wedding. And so if John's disciples truly understand who Jesus was, that he was the long-awaited Messiah, they would have joined the party. They would have been with the disciples and they wouldn't have fasted. They would have understood what Jesus was saying. But they didn't. And they were trying to get Jesus' disciples to take on something that was from man. It wasn't from God. It had that spiritual look. It had an appearance of righteousness. But it was something from man. Jesus says, no. He says, not now. A time will come when these guys will fast. And we know from Scripture that in the New Testament they did. And it was after Jesus went. But this time, right now, while Jesus is still with them, the promised Messiah, that is not a time to fast. That is a time to celebrate. That is a time for joy. That is a time to glean as much as they can from this incredible man who would save them. Then he goes on to say that what he's doing can't be constrained or bound by these man-made regulations. Neither are those of the Pharisees or those of John's disciples. He is bringing something new. Jesus came for sinners. The new wineskins are those who acknowledge themselves as sinners. And in them come a regeneration. In them is a blessing, a love, a grace, a glory that comes from a loving, holy God. It's something not suitable for the old wineskins, the Pharisees, the self-righteousness, the hardened hearts. He comes to sinners and sinners alone. Those who will acknowledge they're wrong. Those who will humble themselves. And when they do, what a great and incredible work Jesus does in them. The self-righteous and man-made regulations cannot bring about the spirituality that Jesus speaks of. A spirituality which will foster the coming of Holy Spirit to dwell in all believers. And Holy Spirit cannot be contained. Not by anyone. And he comes only to the hearts of sinners. Again, those who will acknowledge their need of forgiveness. Jesus came to call sinners. So I want to talk to you first. So many think they are beyond the call of Jesus. So many think they've done something so bad, so wicked, so evil, that they're too far gone. Guess what? Jesus came for you because Jesus came for sinners. And just as Jesus sought out Matthew, he's seeking out you. There is no sin that you could have committed that is too far from Christ, too far from his redemption. He came for sinners, not for squeaky clean, goody two-shoes, churchgoers. He came for sinners. And the majority of us gathered here or at home, if you were to share your deepest, darkest secrets with them, the things you believe you keep from God because they are so bad, they would accept you, they would pray with you, they would celebrate with you because they know they are sinners too. And they know the grace. They know the forgiveness. They know the power of Jesus. And they know that Jesus came for sinners. And just as he came for sinners, he came for you. So many have experienced Jesus' general call. They've made that first step. They want to follow Jesus. 
But have you experienced the specific call on your life? Do you know what Jesus wants you to do for the rest of your life? You're part of the body of the church and you have a specific role to fulfill even in this place at this time. Do you know what that is? If you don't, we'd love to help you find that. We can start by identifying your spiritual gifts. If you'd like to do that, please email me, text me, message me, do something, and I'll get something to you so we can identify some of your spiritual gifts. But we'd love to help you find a place to serve. We'd love to see everyone doing at least one thing in this place. And that could lead for you to find your lifelong call for our Lord Jesus Christ, the work that he has specifically designed for you. We are part of one body, And I'll tell you what, if the big toe is not part of that, we're in serious trouble. You might be called to be that big toe. Peter threw this huge party because he wanted his friends to meet Jesus. He'd just thrown away the life that he knew and Jesus had such an impact upon him, he just had to tell his friends. Can you think back to that first day, the first day you called Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, the commitment you made to him, can you remember how you felt on that day? I felt I was invincible, I felt I was Superman, I felt I'd step outside and be able to fly, didn't happen. But I, I just felt incredible, Jesus had transformed me so quickly. And if you believe Jesus has transformed you, if you believe he's the greatest thing that ever happened to you, why wouldn't you want to tell your friends? Are you motivated to do that? Do you have this desire to draw them in? Are you willing to show hospitality to people and have them sit around your table so you can talk about Jesus? Let me just plug Table of Eights. It's coming. We're going to be doing Table of Eights in the church. That's an opportunity for you to have people around your table, show hospitality to them and share about Jesus, encouraging each other, building each other up in the faith, drawing people to Jesus. Can I ask you, what is your major concern for your friends? Interesting exercise. Why are you posting on social media? You're posting on social media for your friends to see all about your life. I want you to go home. I want you to look at your last 10 posts. And I want you to tell me if you're so concerned for your friends that there's something about Jesus in those posts. Because we should be using all forms of media, everything we can, in order to promote our Lord and Saviour. And our heart should be that we don't want our friends to die. We don't want our friends to die without knowing Jesus Christ and going to a Christless eternity. They will be in hell. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. If they do not call Jesus Christ their Lord and Saviour, that's their destiny. Remaining silent because you're worried about offending your friends, you're sending them to hell. That's the consequence of sin when you don't know Jesus. In all of this, there will be people in your life who try to discourage you from doing what is right. It's quite ridiculous. I've actually heard it in this church. When we have said the call is for all of us to proclaim the gospel and someone has said, you don't need to do that. I've never done it. I've lived my life and I'm fine, aren't I? And the crazy thing about that 
is they're in contradiction to God's word for starters. But more than that, they haven't stood before Jesus yet on that day. They don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know I'm called to proclaim the gospel. And I did it before I was a pastor. And for those who have that attitude where they don't need to do it, where they're blessed and they have other ways of proclaiming the gospel, I would want to be them standing before Christ on that day. And I ask you, any advice you're given, check it against scripture. Don't believe me. Don't believe others. Check it for yourself. We have to. Eternity stands upon it. And if anyone says things that are counter to God's word, reject what they say. And if they refuse to acknowledge that they're wrong, reject them. Don't go to them for advice. Don't listen to what they say. Give no weight to anything they say. Go to others for godly wisdom and advice. Jesus came for sinners. He wanted to transform those lost scattered sheep. And he wanted them to be disciplined followers. And when Jesus left this earth, he gave one command as he left to his disciples. It's this one. And I know you're sick and tired of me pointing to this constantly. But this is what our lives are all about. We, we've got no option. This is the command that Jesus gave to his followers. And he calls us to make disciples of all nations. He calls us to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He calls us to teach them to obey all that he has commanded. And he knows that that puts the fear in you. You're afraid of rejection. You're afraid of not saying the right thing. You're afraid of doing wrong. And he says, don't worry about that because I will be with you even to the end of the age. We have nothing to fear. He who calls us equips us. He who calls us empowers us. He who calls us commands us to do exactly that. We're to make disciples, disciplined followers of Jesus, and he will help us to do exactly that. But it's your choice. What are you going to do about it? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for how much is contained in the passage this evening. And Lord, there's more than what I've said tonight. And I just pray that those gathered here, those gathered at home will acknowledge their need to dig into this passage more, to seek what you are saying to them individually, Lord, and to encourage them, Lord, to move closer to you. Father, my heart's desire is that there'll be something that has touched everyone's life tonight and that they'll take steps in order to just make that part of them, Lord, to not forget and to honor you with their very lives, Lord. Father, I pray that each of us will now have a desire to fulfill 
your call upon their lives, that primary call, Lord, to proclaim the gospel wherever we are, whatever we're doing, to seek opportunities to speak about you and what you have done in our lives. And Father, I want to pray for those people who think their sins are too great for Jesus to forgive. Father, will you break through there? Will you let them see that Jesus came for sinners, sinners just like them? And there is no sin that can separate them from you if they come with a humble, penitent heart to you, Lord, willing to confess their sins and ask you for their forgiveness. You're a good God. Thank you you did that for me. And thank you that you've done it for so many who are hearing my voice now. Let us reflect on that. Let us be thankful. Let us be willing to tell others about it. In Jesus' name, amen.